0: Don't be ashamed to learn things that you need to
1: know. Here's explanations. with Dr. podcast episode 54. I'm in Missoula, Montana. Henry, who does Minute Phenic... Fini- Minute Phenicics? And Minute Earth is in Minnesota. So we're going to do this at a distance.
0: But it will Hi, sound Henry. like I'm right next to you.
1: Oh, because your equipment is so good.
0: Hello. We're using the magic of the modern world.
1: I know. It's really great. I, I would like it if you are actually here, but I'm happy for you that we get to do this from a distance and that you are in beautiful Minnesota.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you for having me on.
1: Of course. I invited Henry specifically uh, months ago to talk to me about attraction because as a a teacher and educator on the topic of physics, the laws of attraction need to be explained to me because all I know are the uh, romantic attractions, and sexual attractions, (laughs) So can you teach me something, Henry? <laughs> teach us all about I,
0: I imagine attraction. I could probably try, but I'm not sure how useful it will be in your in your love life unless unless you're like trying to date a physicist, in which case it might be really useful. <laughs>
1: okay. <laughs> well, I don't even I okay, let's see. I looked up law of attraction and it doesn't seem like science. So maybe I'm not reading the right thing, but it's Basically, law uh, that like attracts like.
0: Ah, well, in certain situa- certain situations, that is true in the universe, and certain situations it is not. In, in at least in the physics world, obviously there's there's a variety of situations in interpersonal relations which are maybe a little bit more complicated. Uh, but from the physics perspective, all interactions or all effects, you know, uh, you may you may have heard Newton's law. It says like for every action, there's a reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like that as much as as every action is an interaction. Uh, there's no one-sided actions, basically. Everything interacts in some way with something else, and that's how all effects are had. And so if you imagine pushing on something, when you're pushing on something, there's a force that is between you and it, but that force is actually an interaction between the two two objects. And this is true at a very like fundamental particle physics, you know, subatomic particles level, that every, every force is actually an interaction between two things. And so some of those forces are opposites attract, opposites attract, some are opposites repulse, and some of them are, are more complicated. <laughs> but the, but the, most, the, mo- the, the one that mo- everyone's most familiar with probably is gravity, right? Like things fall down to Earth, or really just mm-hmm. anything with mass attracts anything else with mass. And so that's us. things that are the same attract, right? Everything attracts everything in that in that capacity Uh, whereas the opposites attract thing that comes from electricity and electromagnetism uh, and particularly like static electricity and that's where if you have an electric charge that builds up on some particle or some object you know like a balloon or something then if something if one thing has positive charge and another thing has negative charge then they attract and two things with positive charge repulse so it turns out that there's only one or magnets right like the north end of a magnet attracts south ends of other magnets, but it, it repulses north ends of other magnets. So magnets and electrical charges have the opposites attract thing. But with gravity, it's same things attract, because there is, as far as we know thus far, there is no positive or negative gravitational charge. Everything is just positively charged, so to speak. Everything has mass. There's not like negative mass. Whereas with electricity and magnetism, you can have north and south or plus and minus. And so... When you have plus and minus, you can have opposites attracting. When you have just things have mass, then same th- the same things attract, and there is no repulsion, uh, as far as we're aware.
1: This is totally relationships. <laughs> it applies to sexuality so, really so, well. So then
0: there are like, are you saying that in relationships there are some, some kinds of interactions which are like gravitational interactions where things that are the same attract and, and other kinds of interactions between people? There is an opposites attract kind of situation, and the, those are like the electrical interactions of relationships. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, there we have our own hypotheses about attraction in my field, mm-hmm. and I can share those with you if you want. But uh, I love hearing about other disciplines and how they approach topics and then being able to use those as analogies for the things that I'm learning or the things that I'm sharing with other people.
0: Yeah. Well, one of the things that that was most interesting to me in terms of like the physics and relationship connection is that there is a proximity effect in both cases, right? Like, Yeah. In physics, pretty much the vast majority of interactions are ones that are stronger the closer you are to the thing, right? It's very weird to have an interaction get stronger by being farther away. That's just, you know, this is your common experience with a magnet, right? You put a fridge magnet on a fridge and it only attracts... Once you've gotten, you know, right up next to the fridge, and yeah. and I believe there's, there's a similar thing with people. Whereas if you're if you're on the other side of the world from somebody, you're never going to actually meet them and be attracted to them. Whereas if you interact with them more, you're more likely to to feel comfortable with them and have that familiarity.
1: It's so true. It's called the proximity effect. But the internet really messes with it because we're allowed to have. Um, a sense of closeness without the physical component of yeah.
0: it, or components of closeness, but not yeah. all of them. Right? It's like we're we're allowed to have the sight and the sound, but not the other parts, not the pheromones or the touch.
1: Yeah. Don't you think those are going to come though?
0: Uh, I don't think that that's very likely. Oh, I think people are are working on it, but I I think it's I think that's a long way off, and it, there's some there's some more conceptual problems with that that make it more difficult to do.
1: I think that we are going to have little buttons in our necks, kind of like how Iron Man has the piece on his chest. Mm -hmm. It's going to be in our neck, and at any time we could press it, and it will give us a sensation of having an orgasm.
0: So when this happens, is anybody going to do anything other than just press this button all day long?
1: Uh, I don't know. I really believe that sexual intercourse of the mucous membrane kind Mm -hmm. will fade out completely, for
0: sure. And you think then that? humans will, re- will will have to be forced to reproduce in some other fashion, or will we just die out?
1: Uh, I think reproduction will happen. It will be more like The Matrix. Gotcha. Where we engineer babies, so to speak, and we do it in pods. Or I don't even know if we'll start with babies. We might just try and get them to be a certain age where they're viable on their own and can be educated on the teach them how to learn mm-hmm. essentially but not everything up to that point point. and then they become the next generation that builds upon that knowledge
0: interesting i th- i feel like the the thing is that like growing a baby from like two cells right mm-hmm. or not even two half cells that come together mm-hmm. and then several weeks or months later it's you know trillions upon trillions of cells that's you know a a miracle of evolutionary biology that I don't think we're going to be able to replicate for a long time.
1: I don't know, Henry, in our lifetime, I'm going to call you up when we're (laughs) 93 and say, well, I'll be 93. You're younger than me. And I'll say, look, it happened. It totally happened.
0: So you think there's going to be like artificial wombs, basically, where there will be, you know, there will be sperms and eggs taken from adults who have this orgasm button in their neck and they will be brought together in an artificial womb and will be grown kind of like plants in a, what's incubator. that thing called? Yeah, like an incubator or um, I'm blanking on the Greenhouse? word. No, <laughs> the, the the one where people have uh, hydroponics. We be grown in hydroponics, yeah. right? And yeah. like hydroponic yep. humans.
1: I absolutely believe that, but I'm saying we're gonna go another level from there. So we're gonna we're gonna start from where we are right now. We're just gonna do it externally. Mm-hmm. We'll have external wombs rather than internal. But then we're going to realize that there is no reason to start from infancy at all. And so we're just going to skip ahead to like age four and put knowledge into that – or not four, like a fourth grader. Mm -hmm. Put knowledge into that human being so that they know how to learn. Like they have all of their language skills and they have all of their deductive reasoning skills, et cetera. But then – from that fourth grade age on, we will develop them as a human being to experience the world in their own way without programming so that they can then build upon what we already
0: know. You sound very biased against small children. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you have something against, against, you know, like five-year-olds? Do you not like, do you not like kids? I,
1: uh, do you not think it's an important no.
0: phase in like, the development of a human being? Or an, a time so, that somebody is would enjoy experiencing as part of their life?
1: Oh, man. I So I raised a five-year-old for a while. I think you may have even met him when we were um, pressing apples for cider as yes. we do each year. And he is quite wonderful. I really like him. But I also think that we're going to be so efficient, right? Because I look at – so what I'm experiencing right now is the birth of a lot of sheep, and these lambs will come out, and they look like they're almost full-grown if they were a different lamb breed. They're just enormous. And then they stand up, and they eventually walk over to the mom within a few hours, Mm -hmm. and they bash their heads up against her tits, and milk comes out, and they figure out how to feed themselves. And that, to me, is so incredible, and I don't know why human beings takes so long to have a sense of independence, and so my guess is that we will just be driven toward efficiency because we will want to have a, a higher baseline so that we can go further with our knowledge and our technology. And so we're going to start people earlier. This is interesting. Or, sorry, so, start them later.
0: So I'm not. I'm not. You know, I'm not an evolutionary biologist, and I don't really know about what the reasons are for. Uh, the development of what's called precocial young, right? Like that's what's called when, when you have a, you know, a bird that hatches and its baby can kind of immediately get off the nest and doesn't have to sit in the nest for a long time, or you don't have to care for it as an infant the way we do. I, I, my understanding is that there are good evolutionary reasons for that with humans. But I think what's the other interesting thing about this is that I almost feel like technology is driving us in the other direction, right? Like it's almost like there's been this very clear trend, at least in the Western world that children are becoming adults later and later in their lives in the sense that it used to be somebody who was 14 or 15 had many of the roles and responsibilities of an adult. And then, you know, 18 or 19. And now like we talk about college kids, right? Like they're still children when they're 21 years old, even though they are doing many adult things in terms of kind of their, the responsibilities that, that I would say uh, at least a huge number of human beings in the Western world uh, don't really become adults until after college in the, in the sense that we might've previously considered the in the way that we think of adulthood, where you're independent and you're making your own decisions and you have your, have those kinds of adult responsibilities. So I almost feel like techno, I don't know how, I don't know how much technology is having a role in that, but clearly, clearly technology has had a role in developing modern civilization and, And, you know, technology and education kind of have become quite intertwined and people are staying, staying in school for longer and doing more, more schooling. And so there is at least some capacity in which we are taking a lot longer to grow up. So I'm intrigued that you think that we're going to try to go in the other direction at some point because, or maybe we will, maybe we'll go in the other direction, but we'll still just feel like kids forever.
1: Well, something like that. Obviously, we know that we have evolved abilities that are much more advanced than sheep, and so it doesn't make sense to associate advancement with a baby born who is able to to just boop, go. But I really do think that we're going to try and pull it off, and maybe even get the person all the way through adolescence. Like, not, why why <laughs> why start at fourth grade when you could skip puberty? I don't know.
0: I think this is this is making me think of one thing that's that I think is interesting. You're you don't have a whole lot of um, like hard science background, is that right?
1: Right. My undergrad is in psych. My master's is in health, and my doctorate is in sex, which are all what I would consider on the softer side. Yeah.
0: I'm not making meaning to make any judgments of any sort, but mainly just that <laughs> you
1: can, you can. No,
0: mainly just that this. I think what's interesting is that the. If you haven't spent a lot of time, you know, learning about the the details of the different, you know, all of these sciences like biology and chemistry and physics are very much, at least, you know, kind of molecular and microbiology. You kind of get into smaller and smaller things. And to a regular human being, a lot of things that even, you know, just, just studying something under a microscope is not something you can see on any everyday part of your life and so anything that is smaller than that you don't really have a good sense for the scale and the complexity of the systems that are involved and i think one thing that happens when you study these things is you is you can you begin to appreciate that like yes these are all really small but the scale of something that is like a little protozoa or bacteria or whatever that's in your gut that scale is actually in many ways much closer to the level of complexity of a human being than it is to the level of complexity of an atom Uh, and the size of an atom. And so some of these, like the, this, this, and this is where like we're, we have amazing technology to be able to do things with, with atoms and electronics, uh, which is what enables all of our computational, all of our internet and all of our connectivity and all of the crazy stuff that, that you can do on computers and phones uh, and things these days. And there is a lot of really cool stuff happening with genetics uh, and with other aspects of, of biology and, you know, gene editing and CRISPR and all these sorts of things. But the the levels of complexity and the scales are just so mind-bogglingly different that it seems just crazy to imagine that we would be able to just say, oh, we're going to skip this, you know, skip the stage of four or five years of the development of a human life and somehow be able to just start at year five or year 10, because... Like, how would, you, how would you actually assemble all of those atoms into the configuration that's, that are needed for a 10-year-old human, right? Like, what's the process? What's the device that's going to do that? The best device we have is called a womb and then raising the child, <laughs> right? Like, and and letting, letting the mechanisms that are, have developed of cell division and the ways that cells divide and grow into, into an infant and then into a larger person, we don't have any... You know, anything nearly as close or as efficient as doing that as as nature does.
1: But I think that the sweet spot is where people like me, who I would say are more um, on the designer, architect, dreamer side, mm-hmm. have these visions that are totally impractical with what we currently have to work with. And we tell the scientists, the engineers, the, you know... The people who take the measurements and build the machines and we say, this is what I envision, and then it happens. We're able to make it possible. You know, this is like having the conversation with somebody who has just figured out how to consistently make fire. And I come along and I say, oh, yeah, but we're going to have this thing called a microwave where you put the food into a box as if you're setting it on top of fire, and instead of it smelling bad, and instead of um, this odd cooking pattern, it's going to be consistent, and it's going to happen within seconds. And so, yeah, the technology is not there yet, but I absolutely believe that it will be. And I'm not concerned about how to pull it off because that's <laughs> your that's your job, not mine. Well,
0: luckily, it's not my job either. I just I just tell tell people <laughs> yeah. about science. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Like. I'm sitting here staring at a, at a box that has a, a, a Lego rocket on it, mm-hmm. and it's making me think about what people thought, you know, even in the 40s and 50s, what the future was going to be like. And mm-hmm. there was a lot, you know, if you look at early Star Trek or a lot of scientific speculation, people thought that we were going to have moon bases and flying cars and regular trips around the solar system, and they thought we might have teleporters and all these fancy physical transportation and infrastructure devices Mm -hmm. and then they had them you know fairly rudimentary essentially just like walkie-talkies right or phones like tele and I don't mean smartphone phones I mean like landline telephones (laughs) kind of setups for yeah for communication and and computation was everything was done by hand by people and and or computers just in the in those sci-fi things kind of felt like they were just digital people that still had the same capacity, the same limited capacity of a human. And what it's turned out Mm -hmm. to be that we have information technology and computation and imaging, image processing capacities far greater than anyone possibly could have imagined at that time. But we really don't have much improvement upon, you know, the cars and the rockets that were there. And we don't have moon bases and we don't have levitation, you know, and our teleportation really in any meaningful way. Because there, there are a lot of physical limitations to actually mm-hmm. moving mass around or making, making collections of atoms, putting them together, which is, you know, call it teleportation, call it creating a human who's 10 years old. It's in some ways it's like <laughs> the same problem. You're trying to, to gather together and put in a very specific configuration, billions and billions and trillions of atoms. And that's a hard project. Uh, it's a hard thing to do if, you, if there's a very specific configuration you need to get them, it. If you want to just have it be a lump of coal or something, then that's another story. <laughs> you know, I just... If you've ever watched... I think it's 2001, A Space Odyssey, right? They're on this, like, shuttle to the moon that's just, like, a regular, like, kind of airplane equivalent on this air... You know, kind of the, the airplane to the moon. And they're reading these, like, digital... <laughs> digital screen things that are newspapers, right? That have, like, the news, the news... You have access to different newspapers from different cities. And that was all people thought about with, you know, the future of information, you'd be able to have, you know, be able to see three newspapers on one screen, but it was a dedicated like newspaper screen. And what we have today is far crazier and bigger and very, very different. And so it's one of those things where it's very hard to predict what are going to be the really changing kind of society changing technologies and life changing technologies. From the physics perspective, there are some hard limitations. As to what we're going to be able to do or not, in terms of you know, you're not going to be able to get around conservation of energy and the speed of light, and so there's limitations to the amount to the amount of kind of really fancy transportation, for example. That's that's not really going to change a whole lot, unless we discover some crazy new physics, you know, physical properties and particles. But physicists have gone so deep and in searching in all sorts of different directions for any new any new forces or interactions in the universe and have, have lots of good reasons to think that there should be other ones that exist. And we have not found any, and we've looked really, really hard. Uh, and if anything, people have been disappointed for not having, you know, we've, there's Mm -hmm. been places where you thought, Oh, this, there should definitely be some sort of interaction here because it, if not, then, then these other things have problems and we haven't found any. And we still, we still just have the same kind of fundamental, the same fundamental forces that we understood there were in the universe fifty years ago, and so that kind of that really puts a, a damper on your, your, you know, the possible technological development from the perspective of actually moving things with mass around. As, yeah. if, when you are talking about information technology, I think we're I think where we're going to be going in the next you know 30, 50, 100 years is very much into the kind of human machine interface, right, and automation of tasks and you know computers that are much smarter, but also Computers that are more integrated into our lives, more integrated than they already are, right, with smartphones um, and hearing aids and things.
1: So can't we have a, a hybrid of our ideas then where it's, it's actually similar to the matrix that you have a body who knows what size, you know, it could be an infant, but we're able to use computers to insert chips into that little person who can then speak all these different languages and defend itself, etc.?
0: I think that's. I think that that is much more likely. I think it's that the matrix is a foreseeable future, but like just being able to accelerate human growth. I I, I think that the best way to grow humans for the next you know thousand years is going to be to put a sperm and an egg together, or take a clone of somebody's oh. cell and grow it. Grow it at no way. S- grow it at some slow <laughs> speed. Maybe in an artificial womb. An artificial womb might be possible, but it's going to have to be. It's going to be grown from by itself right that sperm and that egg go together they know how to build a human right they just need some they need need some resources from mom right to to keep going but they they have everything that they need to know need to be able to grow a human being and i think that that, that letting those work at the speed that they're able to work is going to be the best way to actually grow a human being like to grow the physical body and brain and nervous system uh, of a of a human and they're you know you could probably as that human's growing, you can plug it into the matrix and maybe the three year old is gonna be more precocial than a ten year old today or something. But
1: <laughs> Oh, I have so many thoughts around this. We could go forever.
0: <laughs> the real question is that I have for you is like, what do you what do you think, you know, if if people are gonna be more more and more plugged into computers, how are like relationships and sexuality gonna look? I you know, I know you said that like you think every, everyone's just gonna have a button that makes them orgasm or just like a button in, on their phone, right? Or <laughs> Whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, already we're seeing a lot of changes in human relationships. But do you think? Do you have? Do you have thoughts for the future of? Are we? Are how we? How romance happen? Yeah. How does romance happen? Like, does it happen just in you know in the in the matrix in the online worlds? It seems like to like today that people kind of do a little bit of online you know interacting, but u- ultimately the important thing for people is that it actually comes into the real world. For the most part. Like the edge cases are the ones where people just stay with an online relationship and never actually meet each other.
1: Yeah, I mean, so it's related to what we've been talking about where I do think that we are headed toward becoming more like machines. Though I do think that right now because we are so social, we value the human touch and that connection. And so we will figure out ways to either maintain that Or and or uh, have artificial intelligence that can mimic it for us. Because my guess is that we're going to have some sort of communicable disease that really makes it unfortunate to have close contact. And so things like sex are going to just fall by the wayside because we're not going to want to put ourselves at risk. And so we're going to come up with ways to... Interact with each other and have a sense of family and belonging and identity, community, without the risks that come with that. that that's my dark future. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. I also think that with attraction, for so long, we have really focused on what's called the matching hypothesis, mm-hmm. where essentially people of the same level of attractiveness are socially conditioned to partner. That's all reinforced by our culture and then um, their relationships tend to last longer because you have all these external um, supports built in yeah exactly saying yes yes you two should be together because you're both eights and you two should be together because you're both fours
0: and this is the n- number that you're giving there is a measure of attractiveness as defined either by a culture or by individuals or kind of collectively Yeah, by culture
1: by culture for sure,
0: and that inc- that incorporates both like physical and mental and society like class and all those other aspects in terms of like rating yes. attractiveness.
1: Yes, I mean there. I think it starts with the physical piece for sure, but then people's numbers are adjusted depending on how much they make and what they do for a living and the relationships that they have in their lives, whether or not those are positive or negative. How, you know what diseases they have. The numbers can fluctuate. Mm-hmm. Um, But I'm thinking back to, I think it was a commercial for GoDaddy, maybe, uh, played during the Super Bowl where there was a woman that was clearly a 10, just stunning supermodel. And then there was a man who was, they were aiming for a one or a two, very smart. And they have the two of these individuals making out to kind of show that their website service can be both beautiful and intelligent. And the... People watching it and went around the internet. Everyone got very, very upset. Like, th- these two people should not be having physical intimacy with each other. It goes against everything that we're hardwired to believe. And I think that that is going to change because I think that the next movement with diversity will be more toward the, the complexity of attraction. Mm-hmm. Right, right now, we're experimenting with it, having... More diversity in terms of skin color on screen, but it's still people of different racialized groups who are beautiful. They're all beautiful. They all have flawless complexions and they're symmetrical, and they have nice hair and eyes, etc. But I think that we're going to push ourselves harder and say, okay, what if we're not symmetrical? And what if our if we have acne and um, scars, etc. And then. That visibility is going to change how we are attracted to each other because our numbers won't be so clear cut. We'll have to look at people more complexly.
0: That that's really interesting. And I, I hope that we go in that direction. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's too. making me think of like it's making me think of two separate things, which are which are not going to connect very well with each other. But the first one is that I often have had kind of a a negative reaction towards when Hollywood movies take something that is intrinsically kind of more clean or attractive and try to make it dirtier or uglier for a movie rather than just finding something that is, that has those qualities they're looking for to, uh, to start out with. Right. Do you have um, an example? The The one that comes like most to mind for me that like in my life <laughs> for some reason stands out is cold mountain is a book and a movie. And in the book is like, it's a really, you know, it's this civil war woman is left at, Alone at home to manage, you know, to 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 deal with the farm while her, I don't know if it's a husband or a lover is off fighting, uh, and she oh yeah with Renee yeah Renee goes, and she doesn't really know how to farm because she wasn't a you know she was enough upper class or something or had another occupation that, and the book is just super gritty and dirty and dark, and when you think about these things in in real life, you know, like people who work a lot and deal with these kinds of situations end up like the the place they're living has a grime to it and a weathered you know look that it's the sort of thing that people try to get at when they distress jeans or distress musical instruments right they try to make it look worn and old even when you buy Uh it new Uh and there's just something about that that both the characters and the locations and the places that they are everything always feels too fancy and clean and it feels like it feels almost like a play right like in a play it's totally acceptable to have somebody made up and, like, the makeup doesn't look really photorealistic or right. It's just like, oh, that's just a person that looks, you know, nice, with, that looks normal. And they have this that this giant scar, but the scar isn't, you know, actually real. Or, like, the, the dirt isn't actually dirt. Or the blood isn't actually blood, right? And rather than, you know, a documentary about something is actually going to show the dirt and the blood and the wrinkles on the skin of the person who has been working in the fields for years for all their life and getting mm-hmm. sun, you know, sunburnt and I, I don't know why I think it was just at the time I, I I think Cold Mountain for me was because I read the book and then I watched the movie and watching the movie just felt I couldn't I couldn't get a get beyond like it just felt so fake because everything
1: <laughs> was too clean everything
0: was like everything was too clean and then it looked like it had had some like dirt like sprinkled on it to make it look dirty right mm. and I think at this at the time I'd also been spending a lot of time doing hard work outside and out in like hiking and I was in New Zealand doing, like, vegetation surveys, so hiking through the mountains and counting trees and getting, like, grimy and dirty and seeing how, like, seeing what a landscape looks like when it's not perfectly manicured to, like, look great on a Hollywood screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I just felt pretend, which obviously a movie is pretend, right? Why would I expect anything else? But I think we, I think with movies, we we kind of want them to feel real. At least that has been a trend, right? In, over the course of yeah. the last hundred years Is that movies are trying to feel more real mm-hmm. um, Anyway, that's one direction I'm sure that the, the the actually more The better discussion to be having Would be about the, the use of The various uh, tropes that are used in Hollywood to like make pretty people ugly Which is just such a horrible Idea and concept But it happens, right, in lots of movies mm-hmm. um, And or make, you know Skinny people fat Or things that are that society doesn't hasn't been conditioned to want to look at on the big screen. And the way that that Hollywood does it is not by finding the real thing, but by taking the thing that they're used to putting on the screen and trying to kind of back it out in a different direction.
1: Yeah. I hope that we lose the concepts of pretty and ugly to a degree. I love appreciating beauty, but I I just think that designation of human Mm -hmm. beings is kind of going to wear off. We're like, oh, that's such an archaic way to think about each other. What if we just stopped seeing that or valuing it? What would happen to us as a community? What was the second thing that you were thinking about?
0: Oh the second thing it, I think it was the second thing was more connected with your idea of the future and people having interactions kind of more remotely and it was that often in situations where people are kind of in a story, you know in media or whatever on a, in a movie or a book where somebody has an online persona or avatar, it's very Mm -hmm. natural for the online persona to kind of subscribe more to societal norms of beauty and attractiveness than the actual person, right? This is a typical thing. and It even happens in our world where you have people on Tinder rating themselves as taller or whatever than they actually are, right? So there's there's this tendency (laughs) both in the real world and also in fiction for, um, you know, you have some kind of grungy person who's, in their avatar in the online online world is you know stunning and gorgeous according to societal norms right and doesn't mm-hmm. isn't it all like them and often i have experienced a number of times where in books or films where you have this scenario set up where two people meet in an online world and they don't know what they actually look like in the real physical world because they have some avatar or whatever that's different mm-hmm. it seems just so typical that when they actually do meet, they still are beautiful people, right? In, even in the real world, and that's that doesn't seem realistic. Or and I think in ex- the two examples I'm thinking of, well, the one is the one is um, Ready Player One, and I don't know what they did in the movie. I didn't read. I, I just read the book. But Ready Player One, you know, these these folks like have characters in. It's kind of like you know, what is it like World of War- Warcraft or something, where, where they have online characters that they get to control and, and interact. Uh, With And their characters can look like anything, right? They can look... They don't have to be anything like the real person that's actually Mm -hmm. doing... That's, like, sitting at the computer. But the characters in the online world, uh, you know, kind of fall in love or... I don't know that they fall in love, but they're just... There's there's suggestions or hints at romance. romance. And then in the real world, it turns out that they are, like... That they're both kind of conventionally attractive and also, you know, into each other. Uh, (laughs) And it just... I think that we're, I'm hoping that we'll have more representations of, you know, diversity in that regard too, and acknowledgments of the fact that people in their online representation probably are not accurately re- representing their real world self.
1: Yeah. Or it'll go the other direction where we'll have um, so called beautiful people representing themselves with avatars that are less conventionally beautiful. We'll just mix it up. There, yeah. I don't know where we're gonna go, yeah. but it's exciting.
0: It just occurred to me, I'm sure other people have talked about this, but it just occurred to me that, like you know, obviously there are evolutionary reasons for why we find certain things attractive or why we're t- mm-hmm. we're inclined to and that have to do with evolutionary fitness and the ability of somebody to like bear an offspring and that but you're not too closely related to them and those those kinds of things. but this this trend towards kind of as you're talking about symmetrical features and blemish free faces and things mm-hmm. feels in many ways very aligned with the babyfication or babyfication like dogs that look more like, more and more like puppies, right. Or animals look more and more like puppies. <laughs> right. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. basically we're t- we t- like making human, we're saying that the standard of like human attractiveness also has some aspect of the features that make us like babies of, you know, babies have uh, these, this smooth skin and tend more to have symmetric features because they haven't had the opportunity maybe to develop yeah. asymmetries, Basically, I'm just calling Hollywood actors babies or something.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But it's—I don't think it's that far from reality. And part of it is because babies come out, and like you said, they haven't been exposed to a ton of diseases or injuries, et cetera. So they are the the epitome of health at that point. Right.
0: They're the new car hasn't gotten any any dings on it yet.
1: No. Oh, can I ask you about the attraction to glasses? Because it actually does the opposite for evolution. It's almost breeding blindness Interesting.
0: Into us. That's a good point. I never thought about that. I've always felt weird about glasses. Part Probably because, <laughs> really? because I don't have them and because, you know, they have this cultural association with, like, with things that glasses are not at all an indicator of, right? Like, we th- we kind of <laughs> think about them as, like, having something to do with intelligence or smarts or coolness or something. Mm-hmm. And yeah nerdiness it depends on what the glasses look like but like traditionally it has to do with like intelligence and or you know learning and studiousness and there is a reason for that which is that like you know 100 years ago or 200 or 400 years ago the only people who had glasses were the ones who needed to read and so they had they had to be both rich and educated right and other people didn't you know, glasses, being able to read and being able to see things well was not uh, as important a part of being able to fit into, into, into society, whereas it is now and whether or not you need glasses seems like just so much of like a, both luck of the draw and also weird evolutionary, you know, or, or heritable thing that it just, it seems to me equally as bad as like judging based on, you know, somebody's skin color or whether or not they have moles or freckles or something, right? Like, it's, it's not actually a, s- a signal of anything specifically.
1: But we definitely apply it. And I can say for me, I am attracted to the glasses look for sure, which makes no sense <laughs> biologically.
0: Right. Well, and I, I imagine that that's something that, like, evolution is not really going to have much to say about glasses because there weren't a whole lot of glasses going on throughout most of human evolutionary history. So that's, that's part of it that's what, that must be you know 99.99% social. Right.
1: Yes, I think I'm understanding. I am guessing, though, that if people are more attracted to human beings who wear glasses, then we're breeding that trait in. Is this a is this an
0: established thing now, or is this just a a trend? Do you know? Because I'm thinking, like, you know, there was probably a period of time in the 50s or 60s where people who wore glasses were maybe viewed more as nerdy or bookish or whatever, right, and and unattractive. This is like broad, I, mm, broad strokes, obviously.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, we could take it a step further and say that the people who tend to have really awesome genes that are intellectually, you know, kick butt are the ones who are also choosing not to breed more often than the other way around. <laughs> that was not articulate yeah. at all. What you're saying but, is
0: that, is that like current evolutionary fitness actually favors people who breed more. And thus are less, you know, less educated, basically, because that's that's the main. Well, the other right? way around.
1: The other way around. That people who are less educated are breeding more. Right. Yeah. And so the same. I think the same evolutionary thing is happening where we're just doing odd things that don't seem to serve us. And in what i imagine is a, a fit future but we keep doing them anyway the the glasses is one of them braces is another we are really attracted to straight teeth but often the people who have the straightest teeth were the people who had the most crooked teeth and then got braces <laughs> to correct them and so uh we're not <laughs> breeding in the trait of straight teeth that's a I i never thought about very that very crooked teeth
0: it, like People who had braces m- might actually have straighter teeth than people who just had straight teeth to start with yes that that is isn't that weird, and that's also <laughs> just an American thing, Because right? like other parts of the world like England they don't the national healthcare system doesn't cover orthodontics, and so I think that mm-hmm. you don't you have there's much less emphasis on straight, clean teeth, maybe clean teeth oh, yeah. but straight teeth there's much a much less emphasis on
1: yeah, it's all a mystery to me attraction <laughs> it it's still a mystery,
0: yeah. It's so weird. It's such, it's beyond whether or not it's a mystery. It's just, it's like a weird thing that suddenly like there's this kind of judgment and even re- whether, whether you're talking about physical, you know, sexual attraction or just like attraction to people that you like want to hang out with and be friends with. Right. Like it's a weird experience to like, it's very much the, like you're judging a book by its cover. I think that's what I'm trying to get at where like, you can very quickly kind of feel that there's some pull or not. Right. A pull or a push. Mhm. Um, And obviously when you spend time around people that you, more that you just have, if you were neutral on things and then you spend more time around them, they become more familiar and like the scale tips more on the attractive side or the comfortable familiar side, just in general, everything. I think that's, that's in many ways, just like a humans become comfortable, um, comfortable with things you experience multiple times. And so you tend to like them more because they're comfortable. Yeah. But yeah, the attraction is, is very weird. I think one of the things that has been interesting to me is to realize that there is still a huge diversity of attraction and I you know we, throughout this conversation here we've been talking about like what you know what society views as attractive and you know you're saying somebody is a 10 on the attractiveness scale and mm-hmm. even among people who are of a similar similar upbringing similar culture to to myself I often find that like the things that I that I am attracted to are are different than the things that other people are attracted to. And, like, somebody might look at someone superficially and say, oh, she's hot or something, and I'm like, oh, I wouldn't even, like, you know, <laughs> give a second glance sort of thing. <laughs> um, and it's the sort of thing where, like, you can see when you do look again why somebody, like, what it is about that person or that, whatever it is you're judging, <laughs> you can see why somebody would be attracted or would like it.
1: What are you attracted to? Uh, I
0: think I'm definitely attracted to, like, things that indicate interest in being outside and being active. So like there's an aspect of like actual physical fitness and kind of a little bit of like, like I, like makeup to me, like is, is actually like a, the opposite of attraction. If it's, if it's mm-hmm. at all too, like if it's too smooth, because then there's some aspect of that that to me is signaling like, Oh, this person isn't, isn't going outside and, and <laughs> doing out, you know, they're not doing outside things. Um,
1: uh, uh-huh. <laughs> like charring their skin and getting no, dirty not charring the
0: skin, but just like you're, you know, going out in the sun or sweating. Like if you if you have stuff plastered all over your skin, it makes it harder to like cool off when you're you know if you're if you're sweaty um, mm-hmm. and or it gets messy.
1: Yeah,
0: I think as a this is this is not necessarily an attraction thing, but I think this is getting to the proximity effect thing. I think as a very kind of shy and fairly introverted person, I have often had like. I have tended to have more relationships with people who are more outgoing because I tend to like, because if, if there's another shy person, then we just don't talk, right? (laughs) Like there is no interaction or it's much, it's much less likely for there to be an interaction. And so I'm much more likely to be interacting with more gregarious people. And so even if, you know, even if that's not what I would be more interested in or attracted to, like outgoingness I encounter more, right? And I think this is just a natural thing that like you tend to encounter more the things that you tend to encounter more and outgoing people encounter more people and interact with them more.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. I think that in the the relationships that I have studied, just the people around me, I'll ask them, are you an introvert? Are you an extrovert? What is your partner? And oftentimes ease pair with eyes.
0: And I know lots of people, I know people who are who are introverts that have, you know that are together often because they both did some sort of similar activity or something that brought them together but in terms of regular day-to-day socializing i end up talking much more to, to people who are extroverts because they're the ones who are doing the talking
1: hmm. uh, yeah i'm trying to think of what i am attracted to i, I really like um mesomorphs i don't which are what is a
0: mesomorph i haven't i have never heard of that
1: the in-between body types so there's endomorphs and ectomorphs so really large people and really slender people. Okay. And I, I like the middle ground. Um, I like quirky things. So
0: so quirky, someone, like just kind of outside the norm of what society considers normal?
1: Yes, for sure. So like uh, um, a lisp is something that is attractive to me.
0: But if everybody had uh, lisps, then a lisp wouldn't be attractive to you?
1: Well then, it would just be wonderful. I would have uh, an overflowing field of eligibles.
0: What uh, I'm, what I'm wondering is, like, do you think that are these things that uh, that you've learned to like because they're outside the norm? This is kind of like the thing with the hipster beards. Are you like this study that people did that yeah. showed that like beards are attractive only when less than half of the population has them, and then when more of the population has them, like it's like clean shavenness is, attractive. It's basically like whatever is the minority is attract is more attractive. And it like, in terms of like what you encounter on a day to day basis, it's kind of the novel thing is more attractive.
1: Yeah, maybe. I also think it's a self-preservation technique where if I know what my level of attractiveness is, right. Mm -hmm. And I can manipulate that with certain, um, variables to say, okay, if I, on a, any given day, I'm like a four to a six, depending on how I maybe whether or not I'm ovulating. I can change what I access by what I'm looking for. I can manipulate my own sense of attraction to others by what I'm after. And so I will have a lot more success if I go for someone who's not traditionally attractive because. I don't have to compete with the sevens, eights, and nines and tens. It's it sounds so crude. <laughs> you have to say this is some me, crazy
0: gamesmanship you're you're working on here.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I think everybody does it, but people aren't consciously thinking about it. And I think about it all the time, just to help people understand their own level of attractiveness and and who to have relationships with.
0: How do you go about doing that? Like this, it seems like a touchy subject. How do you? And also, really, really kind of nebulous. like how do you how did you arrive at the the idea that you are between a four and a six? How did you put yourself on this scale?
1: Uh, I mean, I think that part of it is my father is an artist and a photographer, and so he has that perspective on the world of judging beauty mm-hmm. based on the current standards. And so that was just fostered in me at a young age. And then as I, started studying these things and realizing what was going on and then and dating right mm-hmm. that's a huge piece who who is asking you out what is their level of attractiveness who am i saying yes to why does that feel more comfortable and because i can look outwardly and say oh you're you're four, you're five, you're six, you're whatever. Then I am more capable of letting that be a reflection of who I am.
0: Interesting. So it's kind of like that uh, that thing where you put a card on your forehead and you don't can't see what it says, but yes. you like talk by talking to other people, you kind of can figure out what it what it is.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So so and- basically,
0: you're saying by interacting with other people and kind of gauging where they lie, given your perspectives of like how much your, like what you think is is attractive. Um, and who's engaging with you you're you pu- you basically are grouping yourselves in with your with the folks that you're interacting with the most
1: yes, and not necessarily because that is what I want for myself, but I also know that because those relationships are reinforced socially, they're more likely to last interesting I dated someone who was what society would say was an, probably an eight and it was really hard because when I was around this person, I felt inferior. Society was judging me mm-hmm. as inferior, and I could pick up on that energy, and that was really hard.
0: Is this just like a was this a subtle thing when you were interacting with people, or or was it that people would like mistake you as not? Yeah, being
1: but it's al- it's also outward because you ha- what will happen. Um, is that this is very heterosexual, but mm-hmm. there would be women who knew that they had higher numbers than me, and so they could encroach on that space because they knew. they, Like, I I would have to have something else going on for me besides my looks because they could outdo me in that department. And so more females could come into that space, but then also yeah, <laughs> there, there was just a lot of weirdness of like, Negotiating the variable outside of beauty, mm-hmm. like what do I have to offer that isn't my appearance? Which is great. It's so great. There's so much of it that was good, but society definitely put pressure on it for. It's like, and why? and that was
0: was the pressure. Did you did you feel like there was pressure just from from other people's relationships, or did you feel like you know you're just going to the grocery store or going to a restaurant and you f- there were some interactions that felt like there was pressure there as well.
1: All of it. Well, and I think I judge relationships too in that way, mm-hmm. not because I want to, but just because it's taught to us. So, for example, my last partner, uh, six three. I'm five four, and I would always think in my head that we were really close in height. But whenever I would see us, I would realize, oh my goodness, this is a very very tall man, and I am a very petite woman. Mm-hmm. And when I saw people like that together, I would often judge and say, "Come on, lady, like there's there's so many women who want a really tall guy. you you have many more people to choose from because you're so short. I mean, this is all uh, not politically correct. <laughs> but I would I would judge her. And so when I would see myself in the mirror standing next to him, I would judge myself and say, Come on, Lindsay. Like there's, there are shorter men who are looking to have women who are shorter than them. You have this so-called responsibility to give up your tall man to a taller woman. This is nuts. This is – yeah, it's,
0: totally crazy.
1: <laughs> but if it's, it's still there in my system. And I've talked to other people who do similar thinking because it's really ingrained in us and if if you allow your brain to kind of look at what's going on you can recognize it that doesn't mean that it's mature or right uh, but it also doesn't healthy, mean that it doesn't affect
0: but, you what you're saying like exactly. it still affects exactly. the, it affects the relationship which is which is unfortunate
1: yeah yeah I, I sound really really manipulative but i'm also really gentle with myself to say, okay, yes, this is what society is putting into my head and how do I make those decisions autonomously? And so the, ultimately I end up with people because I care about them. I'm fascinated by them. I think that they're so much fun to hang out with. They're, they're, there's adventure and the the scent of their armpits tells me that they're not related to me biologically <laughs> and I can have sex with them and not you know, create offspring that would – be (laughs) less fit so
0: do you you ever i'm curious do you talk to your partners about this kind of thinking because it feels like if you are if you are kind of aware (laughs) of this stuff and you don't ever talk talk to them then it then it Mm -hmm. feels kind of weirder or like you're playing a game that they're not playing and you're strategizing behind their back almost so i imagine you must at some point but like how do you how do you navigate that or do you only interact with people who also do this
1: Um, I talk about this stuff all the time, and I think that people who are attracted to me and maintain that Mm -hmm. attraction have to be into those kind of curiosities. You know, if it wasn't for them, if they felt like, gosh, Lindsay, this is really questionable behavior, then they would self-select and leave. Um, That doesn't mean that I should just run my mouth all the time and say, hey, that behavior was a yes and that behavior was a no, and I am constantly – measuring your ability to be compatible with me, but I do want them to be part of my kind of mm-hmm. scientist brain and and have, you know, cool realizations about what's going on and try and understand, hey, how, how did we end up together and what is still working for us?
0: Right. Do you have a good way of kind of separating out the aspects of this kind of societally imposed idea of pairing and attractiveness that are relevant for, again, the societal idea that people are being paired for the purposes of, like, raising children, you know, in a a heteronormative way. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you have ways of kind of teasing out the parts of it that are useful to you versus the parts that are not useful, right? Like, if, if you're talking about, like, attractiveness from the perspective of, like, the goal of this is to like have a man and a woman and two kids, right? And a dog uh, versus mm-hmm. like the goal of this is to like have a relationship with this person in the way that you want to have a relationship with that person.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I- I'm just trying to think like, how does this come into play? Because, because a lot of these norms are kind of guided towards that perfect, you know, postcard picture.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't want that. I'm not looking for the making babies kind of attraction it it plays a role for sure. And I'm certainly aware of it, especially with the ability to track my menstrual cycle and see how my hormones are playing into the decision-making process. Like, oh, at this time of month, I want, I'm more attracted to alpha males and people who aren't uh, monogamous and, you know, people who will just spread their seed because I want some of that that good fitness. Mm-hmm. but then the rest of the month, I want the the steady partner, the the one who is going to protect and take care of and stick around. Um, so I, I'm aware of that. I think when I was younger, I was looking for different things that I than I am now. I was trying to sort through communication and intimacy and what that looked like and I thought that finding somebody who was, different than me would help me grow. And right now what I'm really seeking is somebody who understands me and I will get the, the growth outside of that primary relationship. But I want the intimacy of a person who has a similar love language and a similar fighting style and a, a similar communication style, right? Somebody who can use analogies and metaphors. That's really attractive to me right now. I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I definitely try to delineate between what I th- think feels good and what is good. Mm-hmm. What about you?
0: Well, I I think part of it is like I don't, unlike you, I don't think about attractiveness in this way. <laughs> um, maybe I will now, for, maybe ruin the rest of my life forever, f- forever going forward. Um, but I don't because I think I'm just wondering because because I don't think of attractiveness in that way. I'm not consciously aware of. Of you know, paying attention to these social aspects and then kind of the social reinforcement or the whether or not something feels like it <clears throat> like it would fit well or not. Ex- I'm not yeah. explicitly paying attention to those. and so I think I think what I'm what I was mainly g- trying to get at is this idea that like it feels like one could maybe deceive oneself into thinking, if you don't want what society kind of has has in mind as the ideal that you can just do what you want and it seems mm-hmm. like there's a part of what you're what you you're saying is that on the attractiveness front at least like it actually it's actually harder than you think because those relationships will be will be harder. Yeah. Which again, which is maybe not so, a surprising thing, right? This happens all the time when like people people are aware of this, that, like if you if you <laughs> if your family like is, you know, very straight and square and like you bring back somebody with a mohawk your parents maybe aren't going to be excited about that right (laughs) it's like that's that's like the typical trope (laughs) but it's interesting to think of even from from the perspective of like trying to be more more open-minded and uh, and as you said like interested in a a wider variety of having a broader definition or idea of attractiveness and how society Mm -hmm. and and, or, or cultural norms still kind of like squeeze you back into that narrower version or at least you have to have there has to be it's harder it's harder work to go out to be outside of that outside of the norm
1: oh i like it
0: so what would you what would you like to see in i imagine like in in media whatever form it is movies or tv or internet things um what do you think i think you said earlier that there that you think that kind of like a diversity of like kind of levels of attractiveness but do you that feels very intangible to me. Do you have a sense of, like, any, like actual, tangible, like, hard points that, like, you, you hope that we're going to see more of going forward?
1: Yes. Um, so I did a, an episode of Sexplanation's YouTube channel on the Beauty Bias, and it talks about how in Hollywood you could tell whether or not someone is a hero or a villain based on their complexion. Or their symmetry, mm-hmm. uh, their skin color, etc. Because villains are often much darker or much lighter than than the white person, mm-hmm. and they're they've got um, like uh, hair loss or scarring or acne or um, some sort of uh, prosthetic, something that m- makes it so they aren't symmetrical. And I love it when those roles switch mm-hmm. and i think the first time that i i noticed it was in frozen maybe
0: uh-huh. the
1: disney movie pixar yeah <laughs> oh i'm in trouble <laughs> but um
0: why are you in trouble where
1: yeah the villain is pretty and um the, and that's happening more in like the marvel movies the roles are getting moved around a lot and i I think that it will be exciting to see some of the more um, human traits in our everyday characters and not just associated with being the bad guy. That'll, that'll be nice. So so things like Acne, um, the Wes Anderson movie that just came out, Isle of Dogs, one of the protagonists, she's got little red dots all over her face and um, big blonde poofy hair and that's not traditional, mm-hmm. but I love seeing it and I'm, I am i I'm excited. It's going to change. And it is because with things like reality TV, you can only control for so many variables. Eventually you're like, oh gosh, we've run out of all the beautiful people who aren't already in cinema. So <laughs> I guess like.
0: Yeah. I mean, I feel like YouTube is, has been a great way of expanding my, you know, exposure to yeah both, both from the, like the, the physical attractiveness but also just like people who have different views and perspectives um mm, and i know that there's yeah. often a lot of kind of like you know filter bubble kind of stuff going on but even so i have been exposed to things that are that are outside of what i would normally associate with kind of standard media mm. which has been nice yeah
1: i, I love youtube so much <laughs> it's wonderful
0: do you do anything specifically in your in your channel your episodes to start to like push in this direction i mean obviously you're talking about it and talking about these issues but in terms of like the way that you like in terms of like wearing deciding to wear or not to wear makeup or bringing other people on or how you're lighting yourself are you lighting you know <laughs> yes. are you like we've
1: already decided how manipulative i are am you lighting, I remember. are you lighting <laughs> are you lighting
0: yourself to like accentuate the the facial like the wrinkles and the bumps in your skin or to make yourself look smooth
1: I don't do the lighting, but I think that the lighting is done to make me look smooth, and I do wear makeup. I have experimented with not wearing makeup or wearing less makeup, and I don't like the way that it looks, and I'm still buying into the culture that says, if you're on screen, you need to be camera ready in this way, but I... Yeah. Even this morning I was like, yes, I get to go do a podcast and I don't have to put on face because usually I don't wear makeup. I'm allergic to it. And usually I don't wear underwear wire bras. So I'm more flat chested. And so it's like, yes, I, you know, like I don't have to do any of these things, which I feel are part of the role. And when I have that thinking and realization, I'm like, okay, well, then stop doing them. Just give yourself you are Dr. Doe. Like mm-hmm. you set the standard. You do not have to wear that bra. You do not have to put that on your face. Just be the example of the of what you're teaching. And so I'm working on it. I'm I'm straddling both worlds at this point for sure.
0: I'm I, I struggle with this even with like in my videos, what do I have? My hand is in the videos and I still pay attention to like, do <laughs> I have like something on it that's a scratch or a blemish? Oh, wow. And like, that's been really interesting to be aware of. And I think I've gotten to the point where like, what what matters to me is actually not whether or not there's a blemish, but whether or not it's, it's something that is sufficiently noticeable that it will distract people from the actual video. Yeah. Right? Like that's what actually yes. matters is like, I want people to be looking – at my drawings and listening to me talk about physics and if they're looking at a a scab on my hand then like that's a problem. Yes. But if I have you know if my fingernails aren't are look like they've been chewed or aren't straight and like no one's gonna actually notice that. If they do then I'm Mm -hmm. doing a bad job with my video making and capturing people's attention.
1: (laughs) I mean I think my thinking is along the similar lines of yes I don't want my looks to be distracting in the way that I think we are um, taught to believe that people are made up, like their their hair is done and their faces are done when they have something important to say. Mm-hmm. And so I am more likely to be listened to if I look like this. That's At least that's what I tell myself. And so it's a journey. It's figuring it out and testing different variables to see what will and won't stick. So I, ha- I have one thing for us to do before I say goodbye. All right. Uh, if you could give our audience a homework assignment to do called Sextra Credit.
0: Now you can practice at home. Like
1: Between now when they listen to this and our next episode, what would it be?
0: Oh man. I didn't uh, this, you're putting me on the spot now. This is like homework for homework for me right now with no time to do it. I'm late with my assignment.
1: <laughs> no. It's good. It's spontaneous. You're you're in academia. <laughs>
0: Um, I mean, in the, in the, the theme of the, of what we were just talking about, I would say like, if there are aspects of your personal values and per, or personality or whatever, whatever you're, you know, like you were talking about preferring to not wear makeup and not wear an underwear bra, if there are things like that, that feel like they're part of you and mm-hmm. you're going to do something or some activity or some place where you feel like you can't like you ha- where you have to wear the makeup with the underwire bra because that's a societal norm. I would say try try it out just once not doing that. And of course like keeping in mind the fact that like I'm not asking you to like wear, you know, a ratty t-shirt to a job interview or something, right? <laughs> but <laughs> but I think like, you know, Lindsay, you can, you can try on your on the show to, you know, do one of those things. Don't do, don't, don't like change everything at once. Cause that, that's the sort of thing that people will notice. But if you just try one thing and just say, okay, I'll, I'll wear makeup today, but I won't wear the underwire bra or I'll wear makeup and the bra, but I'll ask my person who's doing the lighting to make the lighting like a little bit, like something that's going to make my facial bumps appear more or something like that. Just take one step in the direction of trying, trying something that increases the, the diversity of people's experience of other people's appearance
1: henry you're great at spontaneous homework assigning <laughs> assigning of homework that was wonderful thank you okay this was fun i'm gonna do it yeah thanks for being on the show
0: i, I need to figure out how i can do this what 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 can i do that i'm gonna i'm gonna put a big big scab on my hand before my next video oh <laughs> no no no
1: <laughs> oh goodness <laughs> what have we done <laughs>
0: Well, Lindsay, this has been this has been fun. Thank you for having me on.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for being on the podcast and for yeah setting this up at a distance. It's really lovely to hear your voice and uh, pick your brain.
0: I'm happy to be here, and yeah, thank you to everyone who's made it this far in listening too. <laughs> if you don't know what I do, I make I make YouTube videos called Minute Physics, and you can find them on YouTube. And uh, I don't know. I guess I guess that's about it
1: yeah yeah Henry is brilliant and a great artist and a great thinker and a good community member so I, I feel very fortunate that you're part of my life I also want to thank Cali Cinema Studios Complexly all of you for projection Count Boogie for the jingles and Cora Amparo Henry I'm still learning